Madden Luke's Sci-Fi Sanctuary. The year is 3013. The galaxy is scintillating in the mellow light. Two galactic pilgrims seek out vistas in the samurai future to bring forth the unity of the cosmic shaman. Opening the door of the pantheon of mystics, the evil sorcerer wizard powers the engine of science, seeking to forever alter the sacred balance, traveling on effervescent balls of summer fire. zero there was nothing except broken down industrial cities well no he'd made that later oh oh you're going to like way back year zero like well, the film the film starts zero okay oh yeah. well yes it does it, it goes straight for genesis the film being um noah so this is matt this is luke welcome to the sci-fi sanctuary now noah it's like that's not sci-fi but this film is just weirdly played that way well, this it, it is really a sister piece to the fountain, I think. Yeah, yeah. This sort of this one deals in Christian mythology the same way that one did Buddhist mythology. Yeah, but um, one of the reasons I went for it is when uh, we were talking just before hitting the mic that it's one of the few films in recent history that really just goes straight for a biblical story. I mean, they completely, you know, take a different take on it. But how close did this come out to Evan Almighty? Pretty much later, like okay. 10 years later. Oh, okay, never mind. This, yeah. yeah, they're very different Noah's Ark films. <laughs> yes. Like, a lot of the films we talked about do touch on biblical themes. Like, every superhero movie loves to have the shot where they make him look like Christ. Right. But this is the... F I haven't seen a film in, like, yeah, 30 years that is just, here is a story from the... Well, since The Passion. Yeah, I'm thinking of the... Oh, the Passion, Passion of the Christ yeah. is the last, like, big-budget biblical film I can remember. And if you go Old Testament, you go back to the 50s with the Cecil B. DeMille stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe a few in the 60s. I know Jeffrey Hunter played Jesus once. Well, that's New Testament. Yeah, so that's New Testament, yeah. Anyway, the, the main thing here is we're getting the most modern iteration of the Flood story, which... Maybe they should have done Gilgamesh, to be honest. But whatever, we got Noah today. And uh, we really want to get down into that flood story. So uh, I brought in a guest today. I, I've been hearing him on podcasts. Jeez, he's, he's shown up on half of the podcasts I listened to over the past uh, five years. I, I guess I should name check a few. I think I've heard him on uh, Earth Angels and uh, Tinfoil Hat and Lost Origins and, and a few others. But uh, he takes ancient uh, myths and stories and, and tries to... Um, make them a little more logical by basically mapping them against the stars. So hello, David Matheson. Hi, Matt. Hi, Luke. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm looking forward to getting into it because I know in the past when I've heard you, you've uh, blown my mind. So let, let's see where it goes today. <laughs> um, well, thanks. I'm looking forward to talking with you guys. It's uh, definitely a podcast I haven't been on before and uh, movies, you know, drama is actually really important in ancient times the actors were usually acting the parts of the gods and goddesses and if you go to china and see cantonese opera they put on special paint you know and there's certain characters i don't know about the acting in japan but um i would su suspect japan, that there's similarities 
like a mask rather than face paint. They right. don't switch masks for different moods. Right. Cookie, no. <laughs> right. Ancient Greece did that. And, and then there's Beijing Opera, which has some different face paint. But when they put on the paint of that character, they take on the role of that god or goddess. And they can't speak out of character when they're inside the certain sacred space. I know it's that way in Taiwan. And actually, they're not even acting for the people in the audience. You can eat food and talk to your neighbor because they're actually doing the act for the spirit realm and for the gods. So it's, it's interesting that you have a podcast all about the modern, you know, iteration of drama and, and it's all related to, it's related to the realm of the gods as well. Yeah, you know, sometimes it's a monster movie. Now we're just going to talk about how cool that monster is. <laughs> but, uh, you know, there's the, the thing about sci-fi is it's usually a metaphor. So you can apply that to um, so many things in, you know, modern politics, again, ancient things. Um, there's It's just a good way to get down to the things. And, um, I, and maybe it's a little bit of a faint, right? Like, hey, we're talking sci-fi. Oh, but now we're going to actually get a little deeper, which... Um, Dear listener, we are doing that today. So, I mean, you say we don't do that on monster movies. We went pretty deep on our last one. So, okay, we, yeah, okay, we do, but we also talk about how cool the monsters are. So, yeah, well, <laughs> there might be a little bit of that in this one too. Yeah, there are some monsters. <laughs> I thought the, the, the Transformer vibe would hit you. Yeah, yeah, big time. <laughs> um, recently, I've been super into reading about, for a long time, Japanese mythology, and then recently a lot of Greek mythology. And uh, people very often talk about like, oh, this was probably a metaphor for this actual historical event or prehistorical event. But it's so rare that, at least growing up in a Christian country, we bother to do that with the Christian Bible. Where like, I read like Greek myths and like, oh, well, we think Zeus was developed from these different warrior kings and it's an amalgamation of these legends and the Japanese myths, oh, they talk about this, but actually we think it was a land migration from Korea and it's been warped into this. But in, when we're growing up in the UK, it's like, no, the Bible just happened. That's where we get to the whole spaghetti monster, right? Yeah. <laughs> the flying spaghetti monster. But, but um, of course, the Bible is also open to a lot of this kind of interpretation. Um, even like a lot of the demons in the Old Testament are specifically rival gods. Right. From when Judaism was just one tribe among many. <laughs> and you read the Old Testament and weirdly, it doesn't... These days when people talk about God, it's this very philosophical, you know, um, well, life exists, so there must have been a creator. But you read the actual Bible and he's like this petty bitch. <laughs> and when you when you hear the very Old Testament stories, there are other rival gods of rival tribes and he like slays them. And he's not that different from a Greek god or a... And there's plenty of books they just left out of the Bible. So, yeah, well, because yeah. <laughs> they've, they've redeveloped it into this very different idea of what a god is. Right. But um, as for this movie, I guess I'm pretty much the point man. I, I sicked it on both of you. Um, <laughs> I, I did see this in the theater. I'm a fan of uh, Darren Ar Aronofsky, the director. Um, this one, I would, I guess I see it as an honorable failure. Like I, like I saw it and I remember coming out of the theater like not feeling particularly good because it doesn't make you feel very good. Um, <laughs> but then I just, you know, like, it stayed in my subconscious and I think more and more about it. And about three years later, I'm like, man, I need to revisit that movie. And uh, I watched it again and again. And yeah, I was like, wow, this is kind of a heavy slog. And then it just happened again now. But um, it is a fantastic springboard. Just an interest, again, like a very interesting outlier. So ha having thrown this weird one upon both of you, um, how about some, your, your first impressions? Um, well, just first impressions visually. 
you can tell this was made at the peak of Transformers. <laughs> Those shots of the monsters in like the sunsets and stuff, they look exactly like shots of the early Transformers in Revenge of the Fallen or something. Right. Like those films are considered very dumb and stupid, but they had a huge influence on how effects and visuals are done. The voices as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Auto body. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Overall, at first I felt like, okay, this is an interesting take on a Bible story, but it's just giving me this Bible story. It's not giving me much of a twist. Right. By the end, I wondered if it was trying to say something about whether I'm doing what God says because God says to do it, whether that is actually moral. Mm. Seemed to be the question the film was trying to ask. Okay. Which is something that I've often thought is like, it's odd that your idea of good is doing what I'm told. <laughs> so I think there was some questions there, but there you could definitely read this as just, oh, they're just retelling this Bible story. Yeah. <laughs> uh, David, what were your, your impressions on this one? I got a bit in here. Yeah, that was funny. But. <laughs> well, as long as, as long as everyone knows that Matt picked it, then uh, Matt you know, didn't I didn't pick it. Pick it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I enjoy hearing your your interpretations. You 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 guys are obviously very. Uh, you know, I enjoy your your podcast now that I've been introduced to you and, and listened to it. So, I think the things that Luke just said are good, and um, I don't think they had that. Um, you know, back then, I think there was there wasn't as much CGI as they show in that movie. You know, <laughs> it was uh, it was um, I, I felt like there was a lot of lost opportunity. They were obviously playing with some themes, some big themes, but um, you know, I don't want to criticize somebody else's art, so I don't. Um, but I I felt like the character development was not really, you know, just yelling louder doesn't. You know, like you see, I just watched, and it's not a fair comparison, but just a couple nights before, I just watched Casablanca, you know, <laughs> one of the greatest movies of all time. But look at Rick. Um, Rick kind of has to wrestle with, does he want to just be his own individual? I stick my neck out for no one. And then he changes by the end of the movie. But he's been hurt by this woman. And, uh, you know, she comes to him and says, you know, you're, you're just not the same man. I could have told the Rick that I knew in Paris, but I can't tell the one who looked at me with so much hatred last night. But then at the end, he changes and lives for others. But there's like character development. There's like you care about Ilsa. And you, I mean, you, you, you see their motivations. I thought in this movie, they were playing with those ideas that, you know, that Luke just expressed as he, but there was, you know, they're just the dialogue, the writing, it's like how uh, Conan the Barbarian had better character development. Phil didn't and, really have and, and lines, you know. Yeah, I mean, but we've got Russell Crowe, we've got Jennifer Connelly, we've got these great actors. We've got, we've got uh, who plays his grandfather, Anthony, Anthony Hopkins. Hopkins. <laughs> you know, how is there more? How is there more character development in Conan the Barbarian than in that movie? <laughs> but, um, but definitely, they're they're not taking it strictly literally um you see that because in the bible he's told to build the ark so that we're going to preserve the human race i mean why why are you building this ark well so i can kill so i can kill us all off starting with the the babies you know i mean it makes no makes no sense at all just so we can live a little longer than all the people who perished in the flood and then we'll die too 
the, the whole tension was based around that question. Uh, well, no, we're not going to, we're not going <laughs> to, we're not going to survive. Or if, if we do, it'll just be because of God's will. But um, he told you to build the ark. He told you the dimensions. Um, or in some cases, the angel Uriel came and told them. It's different in different ancient texts. But so I thought there was um, an attempt to, to, to play out at all those things, but I didn't feel like the character development in the writing supported any sort of um, real interest <laughs> in me in the character. So I don't want to bash it. Um, I, I just, I think it's a great jumping off point for a lot of, a lot of issues, but the, the stories are not literal and the directors know that. And they say that in some interviews that I, I looked up some interviews and they said, look, don't get on us because we're not taking it exactly literally. Um, these stories are actually all about us. There are, there's a quotation that I love. Um, I didn't put it in my presentation of slides, but uh, by Alvin Boyd Kuhn, who says, the stories of the Bible are not about ancient kings and queens and heroes and princesses. They're about each and every man and woman. And until you see yourself as the figure in the story, you haven't interpreted it right. So these stories are about us. And uh, so, you know, that they're trying to get at these issues that have to do with things that we wrestle with. I just didn't feel like it made it for me. Actually, I thought your Casablanca um, uh, sort of comparison was interesting because Miller was made with like the greatest of ambitions. Darren Aronofsky uh, unfortunately doesn't have a shred of humor, but when he when he pulls off his pretensions, he pulls it off. Uh, here, not quite. Um, Casablanca, everyone involved in the making of that film thought we're just making like a standard pot boiler, but everyone just happened to do their best job without trying. Kind of a Zen thing, and it ended up being like a fantastic movie. That was that was supposed to be, you know, like. Uh, we'll, get, we'll make it at least the front end of your double feature. It, it was that much, but it was not at any yeah. point until people loved it. It wasn't really considered to be anything with uh, great ambitions or anything like that. So, uh, And you mentioned humor. I mean, and they're dealing with deep subjects, obviously, in that movie. I mean, there's big Casablanca going on, but there's humor all the way through. I mean, the lines are, I, you know, I haven't probably watched it in 20 years, and I was literally tears coming out of my eyes at some of the lines um that were so funny um so witty and yet they're dealing with big things and Noah to me this this iteration of Noah was so humorless that it was like come on I, you know anyway I don't want to bash it I, no, I, we'll, I, we'll I already have I already have too much <laughs> I already have too much I'll let you guys talk about it no it's cool if, if hey if you want to hear some bashing go back to our ready player one uh, uh podcast <laughs> mm. well you're allowed to bash that because it's not art <laughs> <laughs> but uh let, let's get a, just for a few minutes we're going to get into the details of the movie and then and then really just get into the flood story but uh brother luke will you preach to the choir the oh, i will <laughs> i've done something a little bit different this week okay that's cool
in the binning. In the binning. In the binning. <laughs> in the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all of the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth the man. Later, she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord then said to Noah, go into the ark, you and your whole family, because I have found you righteous in this generation. Noah was 600 years old when the floodwaters came on the earth. On that very day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, together with his wife and the wives of his three sons, entered the ark. Every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out. People and animals and the creatures that move along the ground and the birds were wiped from the earth. Only Noah was left and those with him in the ark. The waters flooded the earth for 150 days. someone pre-wrote it for you brother luke like a whole bunch of people pre-wrote it for me <laughs> yeah <laughs> several <centuries>. times <laughs> several times that's right no sorry king james wrote it for me there we go you're reading that made me think of uh, when i was a kid actually with uh, one of our other guests andrew um you know we were trying to we, we had a, one of my friends visiting and we were we were trying to make our tv show on like a vhs camcorder and we we're dancing doing stupid stuff i don't remember but the joke was my friend would just keep coming in with a large leather bound bible and reading random passages out of it <laughs> so that was okay. kind of fun um as for this movie uh, david you already mentioned yeah it's it's they they have such a fantastic cast and you know, they might have wasted a little bit but uh i mean just yeah if if i were casting a movie this would be eh, pretty much a what i'd want i guess i don't know yeah they um the it's one of those films that there's there's never any scene that isn't the highest tension most dramatic <laughs> shouting your face off scene <laughs> it that, because it doesn't go up and down and have i don't care about any of it right <laughs> because it's like they're constantly at the highest level of energy so i don't I, what scenes am I supposed to be taking in? Or is it all supposed to be the most dramatic, important thing I've ever seen? Well, I told you in my notes, I didn't see why they weren't throwing Noah off the boat at any moment in the second half, so. <laughs> yeah, it's, is he so much stronger than the rest of them? It's just like, well, if he wants to kill our baby, it's going to happen. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, right, that's his heroic turn. He doesn't murder newborn babies. I mean, that's not so hard to do, I think. I mean, he does go and drink himself into a stupor when he realized how close he got. Yeah, yeah, true, true. But, uh. 
partying on the beach there in his man cave on the beach (laughs) hey that must have been a good party but we'll we'll of course talk more about that in a more interesting sense later but um yeah uh, i forgot emma watson was in here so you know that's always i I like her she's fun she still looks so young in this yeah she's not that i think she's your age yeah she um the harry potter cast are almost the same age as me okay (laughs) but yeah she's like getting pregnant in this film but to me she still looks like she's 15 yeah true uh jennifer conley of course uh, she this is the last time i remember seeing her i like her where what yeah did she yeah i think she was in like troy maybe and hulk but nothing more that was before this yeah yeah, yeah. so uh, she's a good actor so yeah i feel like we should see a little more of her uh hopkins is in for one minute He's got yeah, two or three scenes, so he's in it a bit. He's the most fun. Yeah, he's... I feel like he was fun and humorful and characterful, despite Aronofsky, not because of... Yeah, he, he He's gets, the one that's going to turn up and do my Anthony Hopkins thing and you can't stop me. <laughs> Seems like his vibe. And uh, Ray Winsome is our, our villain. That's who, who I was about to try and look up. Couldn't remember his Ray name. Winsome, yes. I love Ray Winston and everything. Yeah, yeah, he's great here. Um, I was rooting for him over now. I Noah. mean, you didn't grow up in the UK, so you're not used to just having him constantly on the TV and, like, adverts for stuff. Mm. like shouting at you to bet on the football and things <laughs> <laughs> so when i see him in like these big dramatic roles like he played beowulf <laughs> here he is in like the bible but to me he's the guy who like shouts at me that i should bet on a football match and at the end tells me to gamble responsibly <laughs> <laughs> but um I, I think we covered i think we just shouted out well the, the, the other thing with the world. cast they're all like they got this gritty look and they look like they've been through hell and right they're like Apart from one of his sons who looks like he stepped out of Zoolander. <laughs> He's constantly like this super clean white face, the perfect hair, big red lips. He doesn't look like anyone else in this movie. He doesn't look like he's living through the apocalypse. He just looks like he's literally a male model who's been hired to pal. <laughs> um, Dave, we are trying to power through this bit just so he can get... Oh, no, no, no. But do you Go have any, uh, do- any actor notes? <laughs> well... Those are some interesting uh, observations, actually, about the sons. If you read the biblical text, Noah was 500 years old when he bore Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and then he was 600 when he went into the ark. So how old would Shem, Ham, and Japheth be? <laughs> some simple math, yeah. 100. <laughs> Looking good for so, 100. Yeah. yeah. Just, they still weren't, they still weren't uh, you know, tough enough to take on their dad at that point. Right. You know, they were just respecting his wishes. But uh, yeah, the, the, the text obviously says that the three sons of Noah and the three wives of the three sons were on the boat and Noah and his wife. So that's a total of eight, eight people on the boat, which you find in myths around the world, actually, eight people on the boat. So um, you know, I guess the film the, seemed to imply that the two sons were going to have to like wait for those babies to go uh, i know I, that, that's what i was about to say but I, I was about to say but i was like hesitating to even go there but that's exactly what he implies son. and it's like what is up with that it's so like it's like it's just Winston it's horrid like, all around it's just it's awful all around yeah especially in terms of i didn't, I didn't like that <laughs> but any which way like if the story is that only like four to eight people survive there's gonna be a lot of inbreeding that's just inevitable <laughs> Yeah, that's sort of one everyone glosses over with the, the whole Noah thing. I guess the other thing that does charm and dear this movie to me a bit is it is the movie where Russell Crowe literally sails around a boat around the world like fighting people. So yeah, <laughs> I mean it's one of the movies where Russell Crowe sails around. <laughs> around the world yeah, this is the clearest one. Well, Master and Commander. Master and Commander. Yeah. And I don't think he fights people so much in that one. 
He's uh, definitely fighting in this fighting, one. Yeah. He's in fighting mood here. Yeah, he, he fights the French. Come on. <laughs> yeah, with a large gun, so not with his fists. He's got these large guns. That's true. Right? Oh, he's got those guns, yeah. That's <laughs> <laughs> gladiator. Yeah. Um, let's do a little bit on the uh, uh, characters. It's basically, yeah, they're yelling at each other, and Noah, you want to throw off the boat. I mean, that's. I mean, they, they are, they're not really supposed to be characters, right? They're just these biblical figures, they're yeah, archetypes. They're, uh, and you can tell Aronofsky's the kind of director who just. He hires an actor and just says, like, do your thing. <laughs> Russell Crowe, come and do your Russell Crowe thing. Anthony Hopkins, do your Anthony Hopkins thing. Pretty boy, just pout. <laughs> <laughs> Jennifer, Con Jennifer Connelly, look concerned. Um, I guess we'll go into design then, where um, the two things that I really love here are, one, we don't get enough to see of the burnt out industrial civilization. We get a few glimpses, mm. you know, some like advanced Mad Max sort of glimpses. And I like those. Well, see, it's, it's advanced, but it's only like, early industrial revolution advanced it's pretty impressive for yeah but, but <laughs> i mean the bible implies that there's been like the centuries of civilization and then it's all destroyed yeah so i think it's a nice touch yeah yeah because i i feel like especially those 50s 60s bible epics would not have right, right thrown right. that in and the other thing i really like about the design are the uh just psychedelic like clippy shots i love those oh like like when time passes and stuff yeah 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 yeah, yeah. yeah well you know i like avant-garde film so that that presses my uh, my buttons but uh <laughs> i had a lot of time for the rock one the what the watchers are they called yeah i was about to say i need to give you like your the... monster corner for a minute <laughs> um well it's the closest i've seen a film get to actually depicting angels as they appear in the bible yeah <laughs> like is the bible angels just like these wills within wills of burning flaming majesty that you can't comprehend sort of thing yeah and i think we're going to get a alternate view of that before this uh, podcast is over but okay. <laughs> so i mean it, it wasn't quite that but they were like these burning beings of light and then they were cast into a rock and looked kind of monstrous and scary Plus so i had all the time for that and they were very transformers <laughs> not they were their own thing yeah but it's just the way they moved the kind of lighting they had that humanoid but with a bit of weirdness tacked on I mean, I don't know who did these effects, but I bet there was some overlapping staff. That wouldn't surprise but me. But yeah, that was just, and also the kind of lighting, mm. those blue lights, orange lights. Well, you said before, blue and orange seems to be the uh, the colors for this time period. In a yeah, movie. yeah. <laughs> this, yeah, this was, I think this would have been like right at the tail end of that. Because a couple of years later, you're getting Thor Ragnarok and stuff, and people are going back to color. Yeah. And then there's, they don't make films for two years because the world ends. But <laughs> <laughs> And the arc itself was very cool. Yeah, but, yeah, but very big and square. Remind, oh, that Russell Crowe Robin Hood that came out. This has they inexplicably had those World War II landing vehicles that yeah. didn't exist. Or, it or, reminds me of the boats from that. Or that weird, <laughs> weird movie we did highlight from last year with the uh, with like the yeah the spaceship the file cabinet uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> thing. But I just thought it was cool because it wasn't like that. Just like I know, so I think it was someone in the Netherlands or something built their own ark. Right. Which is very much more like the um, children's storybook version. Yeah, which is just but, a generic boat. <laughs> yeah, but I like this just, yeah. Yeah, like well, this makes sense. It's, it's just a big thing full of animals to float. Right. <laughs> uh, David, you want to throw out any uh, design uh, notes? Well, yeah, actually, the, uh, you know, the director actually said that on that last point in one of the interviews that I read of him online, it was a written transcript of an interview. He said, you know, they do give you the dimensions of the arc in the text. And so I tried to go with that. And so it is, you know, rectangular and boxy following what's in the text. So not like the, he says, you always see it depicted as a boat. Now we'll talk about why I think that might be based on the stars a little bit later, but um, that was an interesting 
it's interesting that you latched onto that, that difference and the director actually was talking about that in this interview that I saw, but the other, uh, I would say the watchers were definitely memorable. I don't dwell on them too much in my presentation here, but that comes out of the book of Enoch or what are called Enochian writings, which have had tremendous influence over Western esotericism. They have not been included in the Bible or in the canonical Bible under most uh, literalist denominations, except the Ethiopian church does keep the Enochian. There's three groups of, of Enochian texts. They've been grouped into modern scholars call them Enoch one, two, and three. And they have a lot of those um, lists of angels and fallen angels and, you know, uh, demons. And they're very, uh, you know, rich with important textual stuff. And the, so I thought the watchers were pretty memorable. I wouldn't say they're, um, you know, they're not necessarily literal uh, depictions. It's kind of an imaginative depiction. But I, I thought they reminded me of Ents, you know, the Battle of the Ents at, uh, in the second Lord of the Rings at, uh, at uh, Isengard, you know, smashing the, the orcs. Uh, in fact, I thought it was so, so reminiscent of that. I was like, am I watching Lord of the Rings here? <laughs> but again, with less humor and character development. Not had, to uh, not to bash on it. They had that same thing of very slowly coming around to helping out as well. Yeah. yeah, I did. I, I, although it wasn't really explained as to why they're, oh, we will help this man. You know, he just kind of decided, but but they were memorable. They kind of had six arms going at, at all at once, which was, yeah, I, I thought it was, to watch. was it supposed to be that one of two of the arms were the wings. I wasn't quite sure, but it, yeah, it was a weird look. Yeah. I liked it. But I, I guess we should segue that to, um, of course, you have a presentation for us, which is awesome. So, um, and, and listeners, this is usually an audio only podcast. Uh, we do post the raw video to YouTube. So you'll be able to like see some of this stuff. Or Dave, I told you last time I listened to you on a podcast, I happened to be in a midnight rice field and all I had to do was look up. So that was fantastic. But <laughs> right. Well, and, and I guess the one thing to mention as a segue is they do emphasize the stars quite a bit. And you mentioned that in your show notes that you sent Matt, um, yeah, the the, right at the stars. very beginning. Yeah, they keep going to the stars as they're doing the credits or as they're kind of showing. First, they show the biblical verses on the screen and then they go to the stars, which I thought was very interesting. So my work is all about the connections between the myths and the stars and, and the evidence around the world that virtually all the myths from virtually every culture on every inhabited continent and island around the world are using this system of celestial metaphor, the same system. So they're not different. The ancient Greek myths are using the same system as the stories in the Bible are using the same system. And that's not something that's accepted right now by academia, but the evidence is overwhelming. And I mean, every continent. So the myths from the Americas, the myths from ancient Japan in the Kojiki, the myths from ancient China, the myths from Africa, Australia, ancient Egypt, ancient Mesopotamia, Norse myths, Pacific Ocean cultures, um, Maori and Polynesia cultures all the way from Tahiti to Hawaii to Rapa Nui. Um, 
all using the same system based on the stars. And I have to admit my star knowledge is not tops, but I have uh, been following Orion quite regularly for the past five years. So that's become like my own time clock, basically. Like I know it's this time of year because I'm walking home and there's Orion. And well, he's gone for a few months, of course, too. But <laughs> yeah, and we don't really get taught the constellations. I mean, you don't get a class anywhere, even up through grad school that says, okay, here's how to find the constellations. Here's how to outline the constellations. Now let's go out into the night sky and identify the constellations. And Orion is of you know a great constellation to see and glorious at this time of year you know winter in the northern hemisphere um, in the evening you can still see them in the morning um, but all of the constellations are not easy to pick out some of them are very obscure to pick out and yet they're using the same system around the world which i can show i i, I don't go too i mean i show it in some other uh podcasts and some other videos Today, I'll, I'll focus a little bit on the flood myths, and uh, I can't even cover all of those because they're found around the world. So I'll just give you a little sampling. But for those who are able to watch it on YouTube, it, it, it is helpful because we haven't got most of us, even if you're into, I say this, even if you're into astrology, like people who are into astrology and know the characteristics of a Capricorn or a Sagittarius, if you gave, if you're, you know, in a bar with someone and, and they start talking about astrology and, oh, I'm a Sagittarius and, and you say, oh, could you draw the outline of Sagittarius and the stars of Sagittarius? They won't typically know the outline of the stars because we haven't been taught them in the outlines that we're given or that we are given that we find on Wikipedia or in some of these uh, planetarium maps. The outlines are not helpful at all, but um but if you use the right outlines, you f then you start to see the connections around the world. So it's almost like we've been given the wrong outlines on purpose. Yeah, I know um, my school is at least cool enough to take us on a field trip to the planetarium. But you know, once they show you the uh, constellations, they just have these ridiculous ornate pictures that don't quite mm -hmm. really fit the stars. And also it's like terrifying to see all of those above your head. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the ridiculous ornate pictures. So H.A. Ray is, is a... It's not a tangent, but I don't, I didn't include it in my presentation, but sometimes I talk about it. He is the author who, whose outlines that I use and that I actually grew up with. And you might've heard me talk about it on some other podcasts. You know what else H.A. Ray wrote? Yeah. Curious George. Oh, Drew. Drew Curious right, George. Yeah. H.A. <laughs> yeah. Ray and his wife, Margaret, they escaped from Paris during World War II. So Casablanca, uh, reference there they escaped from paris on a bicycles on bicycles that apparently h.a ray you know basically put together from some bicycle parts uh from various bicycles and they bicycled out of paris right before the german army rolled in and then uh, they escaped to brazil where they'd both been i think before and then they ended up in greenwich village new york and then they published the H.A. Uh, Ray books in the 40s, starting in the 40s. And then in 1952, H.A. Ray wrote this book called The Stars, A New Way to See Them. And he complained about exactly what you just said, these flowery, ornate outlines that look great on paper, but don't really match up to the stars at all. It's kind of like an artist's you know, rendition. And so when you go out into the sky, you look up there and you can't see it at all. Either that or we get this jumble, which is usually what you see kind of on Wikipedia, that, that looks like nothing. And once again, you can't remember it, let alone 
pick it out in the sky. So he said, here's a system that looks like what they're supposed to be and also is easy to see in the sky and is memorable. And it's an absolutely wonderful system. And it wasn't until much, much later that I realized that his system matches up with ancient artwork, matches up with the ancient texts. And people might say, well, how, how could that be? I don't know how it is. It may be that he, he was privy to some ancient knowledge and he said, World War II just happened. And I think the world is going crazy. I'm going to publish it. I don't know why he published it. He never mentioned that, to my knowledge, he never made public any connection to the ancient myths and his outlines or the ancient artwork in his outlines. But I could show you, you know, piece after piece from around the world of art where the characters are using the same characteristics as those constellations have, including from Japan. I'm guessing with uh, the whole flood thing, uh, unfortunately, my sky isn't quite dark enough to see it uh, here, but uh, the, I, I guess we start with the Milky Way. That, that's our that's our water, is it? <laughs> that's that's a very good guess. And yes, yeah, so let, let me show, let me throw up the uh, let me throw up the the slides if if you're ready. I have is a very good, brief good call. Go family. go ahead, Luke. Yeah. I'm currently reading Curious George with a student, and whenever the monkey needs to relax, it smokes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, wow, this was written a while ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I had that wrong with the student That's last right. year. Yeah. <laughs> the man with the yellow hat is always carrying around a pipe. Yeah, it's like, you know, oh, George had in fact, almost all the... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, the, uh, the, the, there's a lot of things in the books where you're like, oh, this wouldn't be written today. No. This wouldn't really be something that you would present to kids today. But it's uh, eight years ago. Yeah. You can't you can't really yeah. judge it by those standards. <laughs> yeah. Japan's lacking the whole yeah. PC thing, so we can get away with it anyway. Yeah. <laughs> but it, but but it, but it does connect in. You know, some of the things that I'm going to show do connect into some of the things that you were saying, Luke and and Matt. I know you you've mentioned you had an Episcopal upbringing, or you know, at, yeah, at some right. point in. And the and the these these stories are all using the same system, so that the the figures in the Bible correspond to the same system as the system that underlies the Greek myths or that underlies the Norse myths. And so you see these characteristics where a god who is often angry, Thor is often angry, but he's also jovial. You know, he loves a good party. He loves a you know he'll eat three entire oxen you know for the party and drink a whole vat of beer but when he gets mad he gets really angry and the same thing with jove that's where we get the word jovial he loves to party he's you know good natured most of the time but when he gets angry he starts throwing thunderbolts and thunderclouds around and so those characteristics match up with a specific constellation actually the constellation hercules i don't go into it that much in this but Zeus's son or Jove's son is Hercules and Hercules has the same traits. He's, you know, burly, big, full beard, likes to party, but you know, you wouldn't want to be on his bad side. That characteristic is found in the same thunder gods in the myths of Central America, the Maya myths. And there's a character in the Kojiki of Japan, Susan Owo, I, I'm probably not Susan, saying it exactly Susan, right. I think. Yeah, yeah, I know he been. And he is the same way. He's uh, out of control at some sometimes. Um, 
And that's why Amaterasu goes and hides herself in a rock, uh, the goddess Amaterasu, because he threw a backwards flayed horse down into the knitting hall uh, where her servants or attendants were all weaving at the loom. And all those are celestial. It's all celestial. So um, I think those are great observations and, and uh, that you were making about the connections. your line of thought then uh what, what's the first image you want to uh get into yeah let me share screen uh i think i've been able to it should work yeah i'll give it a try let me know when you're seeing my so, screen there go, january 26 we're here right on here we are so i started off with this image because i think there's a scene in the movie that's almost exactly like this and yeah, it's yeah, pretty very similar bosch and yeah this is a painting from uh, someone named Francis Danby oh, okay. lived in the 18, painted in the 1800s. It's called the Deluge, the Deluge. And uh, it's interesting because over here, we've got a, uh, we've got a giant right there. You see that oh, yeah. much bigger than the time. others. Yeah. <laughs> and over here, you see an angel weeping over the giant. Um, there's some interesting things in here. And actually up here, if you look very closely, if your viewers are watching this on YouTube, they might want to throw it onto a big screen rather than on their cell phone, but you can almost see the uh, exact pounding with a rock kind of uh, image that keeps getting repeated throughout the movie of Noah. You and see I, that? I, it looks like they're, seconds, they're fighting there. Yeah, for two seconds, I thought you were showing us the scene from Noah. And I was like, oh, wait, wait, this is a painting. <laughs> this is a painting. It's so similar. I would guess that they saw this painting <laughs> before they made the movie. Yeah, but, uh, yeah. This is what we'll be talking about, the flood of Noah. So what do I have next? Oh, I, uh, since Luke has already given us the, all the text, uh, we don't need to reread it here. But this is, uh, this is some, some interesting backstory. And actually, you get even more backstory in the Enochian texts. But the same, you get the same pattern in other myths where the gods get angry because there's too much multiplying going on on the earth and the people are making too much noise. And that's why we're going to have to limit their lifespan and things like this. So I'll just, um, I'll just outline the text and people who are watching on YouTube, if they feel like going back and reading it for themselves can uh, simply pause it and go there. But this is talking about how the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I've created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and the creeping thing it repenteth me that I have made them. I am sorry that I ever even created. It's horrible. I mean, it's, it's frightening. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. It doesn't imply that he actually, grace theologically means um, a gift that is given. Uh, it's not that Noah necessarily deserved it. Um, I, I oh, guess that's what Aronofsky's running with in this film, though, the uh, it repenteth mm -hmm. me. I mean, that's just made really, I mean, it's, you know, what, four words or three or four words here. But yeah, really, that's, I guess that's what he latched on to for his tone of this movie, for better or for worse. <laughs> right, right. And I've already, already called attention to that 
500 years old. Um, but you're right. It's a very, you know, if you believe that, then you might be wondering, well, what, what if, what if he changes his mind again? But if you understand that this is, this is actually esoteric, these ancient myths are not literal. And by showing that they're celestial metaphor, we can understand for sure that they're not literal. And that doesn't mean that we haven't had catastrophes on the earth. I actually am on record believing that we have had flood catastrophes that have shaped a lot of the geology that, or all of the geology that we see around the world. But I don't believe that this text is literally telling us about that. This text is talking about things that are going on inside of us. So, and then I go on and I'll outline this and people can read about the, uh, the destruction of all the living things and we've already gone over it. So I'm just going to move ahead. Here's that uh, typical representation of the ark. This is from Edward Hicks from again, the early 1800s. Yeah, that That's how we, my, uh, almost always seen class from yeah. six years old and something like that would have yeah. been on the wall, probably a little more cartoonish, but <laughs> I do love there you paintings of animals from historical artists. You've clearly never seen the animal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's some uh, some long-eared uh, tigers in the background there with yeah. really uh, feline tails. But also look at the trees. I think you kind of get some trees like that in the movie at some point. The kind of the uh, I don't I don't remember exactly. But now let's go to the stars. So now that we've seen a couple of images, here is the constellation Hercules that I was just telling you plays the role of Zeus, plays the role of Thor. It's not an easy constellation to see, but that is the outline that is repeated over and over in ancient artwork. I'm, I'm not going to go into it in this presentation I have in other places, but um, right below Hercules is a very important constellation called Ophiuchus, a very large constellation. It looks like a central kind of almost tombstone-shaped body holding two serpents on either side. And then right below that is Scorpio. And they are right next to the Milky Way. So I've inverted all the colors, but you mentioned the Milky Way, Matt, very, very uh, insightful that that is the waters that pour down from heaven and flood the earth, because I believe that definitely they play that role. And they play that role in a lot of movie, uh, movies, myths. They play the role of waters, either rivers or um, sometimes the edge of the sea in the Iliad, for instance. You mentioned the movie, the Iliad. Um, so everything that's light on this screen is actually the dark night sky in the sky and all the dots, the black dots are the, the stars. They're really bright in the sky, but I've inverted everything. So the, the reason I'm saying that is the Milky Way is that dark smudge. Right. But it's really br a bright shining path in the sky. And actually that part right by Scorpio and Ophiuchus is the brightest and widest part, widest that's actually the center of our galaxy, the uh, Milky Way there. And so that's a very important, mythologically important part of the night sky. So in the descriptions of the Ark, uh, it could be a couple of different constellations. And it's not always, in myths, sometimes figures will move through different constellations. So there's another constellation that we'll see a little later called the Great Square. And I've also written that that could also play the role of the arc. But I do argue that Ophiuchus plays an arc here in the Noah story and also in many other stories. And it's got these kind of outlying 
uh, flanking, you know, serpent-shaped figures. And I would say that that might be why you're getting this shape on the ark. It's got a central house-like figure, and then it's got kind of the curving boat-like figure around it. That's kind of a donut. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's just my, you know, I'm sketching it in. People might say, well, that's kind of a stretch. But let's go to, I just want to show, you know, I can prove with, with example after example that this is going on. When you see just one example, it's not necessarily convincing. But when you start to see example after example, it becomes very, very compelling. In fact, I used to take the Bible literally. Um, I was, you know, happy to start exploring the connections between the Greek myths and the stars. I was not so happy to start exploring the connections between the Bible and the stars. But over time, I realized that Basically, every story in the Bible from first to last is connected to constellations. The first one that really hit home was the Samson story and then some of the passages from Revelation. But let me move to, uh, you can see I've, I've brought in a picture in the upper, kind of near the foot of Hercules. And what is that there? That's a... Cuneiform? Uh, exactly. The cuneiform tablet from ancient Mesopotamia. This is one of the Gilgamesh tablets. This is actually the one that talks about the flood. This is tablet. It's 10 and 11 where the flood takes place. And they call this one the flood tablet. And it's in the British Museum. And in fact, it wasn't even translated until 1872 was when, because they were all in fragments, little pieces. And they at first they had to be put together like a jigsaw puzzle. And then they had to be deciphered. And cuneiform was deciphered even after hieroglyphics. And there was a young, there's a great story, the, the young man who was like a genius in England, he was like working during the day, but he would walk down to the British Museum during his lunch hour and help them translate. And then he'd go back to work at his father's printing press. Um, that's a little tangent. But in this, when he came across this particular text, this young man, um, whose name is slipping my mind at the exact moment, but he he became so flustered, he started running around in excitement and actually uh, taking off his clothes, which, <laughs> like he was totally out of his mind because he, he was encountering a story of a flood. And after the flood, the Noah character releases a raven and releases a dove. And he just, his mind was completely uh, just, he was out of his mind for a little bit. He didn't know what to do. And so in this, uh, in this text, the Noah character is called Uta Napishti, or sometimes you see it spelled Ut Napishti, sometimes Ut Napishtim. Um, but that same Na sound, we'll return to it, is similar to the Noah sound, Uta Napishti. Um, he's also called, there's another Babylonian uh, epic. So there were Sumerians and there was Akkadians, and the Akkadians were the Babylonians and the Assyrians, but it's all ancient Mesopotamian. Um, and we're more familiar with the, the Babylonian and the Akkadian versions than the Sumerian versions. And that's a whole nother very interesting story we could go into. But the Sumerians invented the cuneiform and then the Babylonians and Assyrians used it themselves later. There's another text that has a flood narrative, Atrahasis, who's probably the same figure. One, the first name means ancient of days or very long of days or very far of days. And the second one means extremely wise. So they're probably adjectives describing the same 
character. It's the Noah character. In an ancient uh, Sumerian, he's called Zisudra. Sometimes you'll see it spelled with a X instead of a Z, Zisudra. Um, and I'm not a scholar of ancient uh, Akkadian languages or ancient Sumerian languages, so I may be corrected on uh, some of those pronunciations. But there's a very amazing, there's amazing connections between these, uh, some of the events in those descriptions and the stars as well. Like in the Mesopotamian, it's Enki or Ea who comes to tell the Noah figure, Utnapishtim or Atrahasis, to build an ark. And he whispers it through a crack in the wall or through a chink in the wall. And you can actually see So in this passage, this is actually an image from one of my books that talks about this. You see how Hercules is like bending down to kind of whisper into the, uh, almost like the, uh, the serpent there of Ophiuchus is almost like a listening, you know, one of those like listening horns. And Ophiuchus plays the role of a wall in some myths, plays the role of a hut, plays the role of a mountain. And you can see why from its shape. And so in, in the actual ancient text of Atrahasis or Atrahasis, he says, Enki, see, Enlil, who wants to destroy humanity, says to the gods and goddesses, don't tell any humans. <laughs> and Enki is like, well, I don't He's want them to all be destroyed. <laughs> so he goes and he says, how am I going to not tell them? Oh, I know. I'll go, to the, I'll go to the place where Atrahasis is sleeping and I'll whisper, hey, reed hut. Hey, wall listen up. The earth is going to be destroyed. So we need to tear down the house and turn it into an ark. And that's, and then he can say, well, I didn't actually tell Atrahasis. I just uh, spoke it out loud to his house. <laughs> Screaming at a wall. <laughs> yeah. And then down at the bottom, he also says, um, for I'll make rains fall upon you where you stand, descending like a wealth of fowl, like a treasure of fish. Um, after I made this, uh, this slide, I heard Luke's joke about the red and blue ink from, from uh, East Germany. <laughs> so, oh, <yeah. laughs> so I thought I'd uh, bring that up. But, uh, but look at the, um, this, is, this is that same quote that I outlined in blue. The bitumen, that's a kind of uh, uh, tarry uh, oil that they dig up in Canada. A lot of the oil is in the form of bitumen. It's the same word we get for pitch. They pitch the ark and they, they, they cover it with tar in the movie. You see that going on. But you see this in myth after myth around the world where a baby is put into an ark and they slime it over with pitch or they cover it with bitumen or, or uh, tar. And also that part about the rains descending like a wealth of fowl. There's actually a constellation right next to the constellation that I'm arguing is an ark. That's the constellation called... Aquila, which is the eagle. And a little bit further up, I cut it off in this. It didn't fit on my uh, star map. But there's another one. Cygnus, the swan, is pointing its neck right downwards towards Aquila. So those are like the two great birds of the Milky Way. They're right there in the Milky Way. The Milky Way is like the rain coming down, like a wealth of fowl, Aquila and Cygnus, and also like a treasure of fish. And right next to them there, there's another beautiful little constellation called Delphinus, the dolphin, 
which plays the role of sometimes a salmon in Norse myths and in Native American myths, plays a role of a salmon. Sometimes it plays a role of dolphins, like when Dionysus tosses the pirates into the water and they turn into dolphins. Um, and then here's the Milky Way pouring down right there. I outlined it for you. So there's little textual clues that we are talking about celestial events. That's the Milky Way. Um, also from the Mesopotamian. So now I'm going to tell you who I think Noah is. Anyone recognize these interesting science fiction looking characters? Are we looking at seven sages with the, with the bags? Yeah, that's right. Not the greatest resolution when I blew it up to large size, but this is a figure is often called Oannes. Have you ever heard that name before? There was a uh, third century BC um, Hellenistic era, you know, like after Alexander the Great had kind of conquered the Mesopotamian area and brought Greek there, but he was a priest of Marduk. So he was from Mesopotamia, but he wrote in Greek named Barossos or Barossos. And he wrote about these figures, you said about the seven sages and a figure called Oannes who comes up out of the water and then goes back down into the water. And uh, that name again, Oannes is linguistically similar to Noah and also to Utnapishtim or Utnapishti and also to Jonah who gets swallowed by a fish and to John, Oannes, you know, it's similar to uh, Owen in, in Ireland, which is basically a form of John or Juan in Spain, which is basically a form of John. So we'll see that, that linguistic pattern over and over, but look at the outline of the fish kind of an interesting shape. He's holding one of those mysterious bags. Now I'm going to show you the constellation that I think is a very strong candidate. In fact, pretty much a slam dunk for Noah. If you can't get uh, Russell Crowe to play Noah, then you should get this constellation because that's actually who Noah is right there. That's Aquarius. You see how he has that water pitcher? Right, right. See how he's kind of pitched forward? Uh, he's carrying a, a pitcher there. Uh, that's his water vessel pouring out water. Uh, nearby is this fish, Pisces austrinus, which means the southern fish or Piscis austrinus, an important constellation. We'll mention it in a minute. And also Capricorn, which uh, is important later in the story. So I am not not the first one to argue connections between the myths and the stars. And so there's others who have argued uh, there's a, there's actually a preacher in England in the Episcopalian church who was named Robert Taylor, who lived from I think 1755 to 1825. And uh, I might have those dates a little wrong. He, he was talking about the connections between the, the Bible and the stars. And he actually got kicked out of the church for that and got, uh, imprisoned for three years uh, for that. But he talks about the connections between Aquarius and these Oannes figures. And look at the hat, the fish kind of hat, and look at the shape of Aquarius's hat or head. See how it could look like a almost a fish That's our, our shaped hat. hat for the Pope. <laughs> Matt is, is anticipating. Okay. So that's a bishop's hat. <laughs> That's the hat of a bishop. And you see how it's a fish hat, a fish mouth. Mm. And it's very much the same shape as the, as the head of Aquarius. So those are 
those are some arguments that Jonah is connected to Aquarius. We'll see some more. But if you had to guess which of the zodiac constellations or really which of the, any of the constellations would be a figure who's so associated with water as Noah is, you'd probably want to include Aquarius as a likely candidate for the role. But also there's this figure in the New Testament. You may or may not be familiar with this story, but this is a story where Jesus and his disciples want to go somewhere and the, the tax collector or the, um, the gate guard says, oh, well, you got to pay the tribute or you got to pay the toll. And Jesus says, oh, and, and all the disciples say, we don't have any money. And Jesus says, don't worry about that. Just put Peter, go catch a fish. And then in, this is in uh, Matthew 17, the tribute money is found in the mouth of the fish. If you look closely at this painting, this is from the 1600s. The tribute money is found in the mouth of the fish. I don't know if you can see that on your screens there. A couple of coins coming out of the mouth of the fish. Notice Pisces, see Pisces Austrinus down there below the screen? Right. How it has a very bright star in the mouth of the fish. The name of that star is actually Fomalhaut, which means the mouth of the fish. It's a bright star like a shiny coin in the mouth of the fish. But what's really important to the reason I bring it up here is Simon Peter is at one point in the uh, Gospel of Matthew referred to by Jesus as Simon Bar Jonah. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but you can do a search through uh, Matthew and find Simon Bar Jonah, which means Simon, son of Jonah. So Simon Peter is somehow associated with Jonah, who I'm saying is also associated with that same Nah, Noah, Jonah, is associated with Aquarius. And by the way, Peter was the first, you know, Pope or the first Bishop of Rome, according to uh, tradition, right? He's the first one to have that headgear. He's associated with Aquarius. Peter's associated with Aquarius and he's also associated with Jonah. Who's also, it's the same fishy character and he's a fisherman uh, throughout these different stories. And later he gets drunk. And this is the, this is, this is where we really have some textual evidence to associate Noah with the constellation Aquarius, as I'll, I'll show you in a minute. But remember this part from the movie? Right, right. Uh, th I guess he's just lost his pants down here. That's, that's probably for the best. <laughs> so, yeah, so, well, he got falling down drunk. Right. Yeah. He, he, so actually it says in the Bible that, you know, and after the flood, Noah was a husbandman and grew wine, uh, grew a vineyard and then made wine. And that's the first mention we have of wine in the Bible. And so many people, especially those who take it literally say, oh, that's the first, you know, time anyone made wine. And so he probably didn't know what he was drinking there. And he got so falling down drunk, he passed out naked and uh, ham comes and calls attention to the fact and Shem and Japheth say, well, we can't see our father naked. So they put a cloak between their shoulders and walk backwards to drape it over Noah. So they can cover him without actually seeing his nakedness. Meanwhile, and we have then, hot springs here in Japan. Yeah. <laughs> right. That's right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but it's a very important passage because it's been used literally, it's been twisted 
literally, because Noah then, when he wakes up, it says, well, he knew what his son Ham had done. We'll never actually find out what he did. All he did was, that we know of was he called attention to his father's nakedness and told his brothers. But Ham is cursed and told he will serve his other two brothers, Shem and Japheth. And so for years, all the way up, centuries, all the way up until the 1800s, this was used for very racist um, very racist interpretations to say, well, okay, so the sons of Ham are the, they must be these different ethnicities and the sons of Shem are these different ethnicities and the sons of Japheth are these ones. And so those, those ones we can enslave and, and, and they've got, ma- you can find maps where they put over the, you know, I could even show one, we could go on Wikipedia and you could see where they say, oh, this is, you know, Ham's children are here in Africa and going across to here and then Japheth is, uh, oh, that's Europe. And so it all becomes very uh, racialized. And, you know, that's another criticism you can make of the movie is that, well, you know, what's up with all the. Yeah, everyone all, in it's very and, white. <laughs> and then, uh, so the implication is what that, uh, you know, afterwards, then they branch off. But I, I, again, I don't want to, I'm, I'm already focusing too much on the movie, but this is a very, it's actually a very esoteric metaphorical has to do with the total opposite of the way it's been twisted. And so that's, it's an example that I used to show how taking it literally gives the, I would argue the exact opposite message of what, when we take it, when we understand that it's esoteric and it's metaphorical can show. So uh, this is, this is a painting from 1360. Let me show one more. This is from the Nuremberg Chronicle of 1493. This one's uh instead of Japheth, uh, Japheth is now covering his eyes. He's actually, he's actually um, depicted in this one in the place of Sagittarius. But Ham, who's spelled with a C, because it's, it's actually like Ham, it's a guttural uh, sound. And Shem, Shem is covering him and Ham is trying to uh, call attention to his father's nakedness. But look at the outline, the posture of it's Noah. Noah. Yeah. Yeah. It's quite similar. It's just like Aquarius. Aquarius. Aquarius sorry. Yeah. Yeah. It's just like, and we'll show it in a minute, but also he's the first one to build a vineyard. And we've got this kind of square in the corner of this. This is from the 1400s. Whoops. <laughs> I, I went a little fast, but there's uh, look at Aquarius and there's Capricorn. There's the great square, not far away. The great square of Pegasus which is in between these branching fishes of Pisces. Pisces. So now I'll bring back the uh, 1400s painting here. So my argument, and I think it's, it's pretty much beyond doubt from the text and from the way it's been depicted down through the centuries, but mostly from the text. You know, this is one where I was, I was wondering who, what is this, what does this mean? And when I got it, it was, when I, I actually remember thinking about this before, like I couldn't figure it out. And in the morning I woke up and I knew the answer. Like it came to me, not right away, but a little bit after waking up, I was like, Oh, I know, I know the celestial connections here. So Noah is connected to Aquarius. We can see why he's naked from the outline of the constellation. We'll talk about that in a minute, but look at how the outline of the, Look oh, at how I the outline of the first showed me the constellation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's actually it's 
the myths get very uh, explicit at times. So there, look at the outline and look at the outline. And then we have uh, the vineyard. There's the branching vines there, but also this kind of square, um, the great square. I don't know if you're able to see my arrow because That's I've got this. It, yeah. You, yeah, you have screen sharing at the top. But um, great square of Pegasus plays the role of a vineyard in other myths around the world and also in the Bible, which I'll show you in a little bit. But I, uh, and then Capricorn is Shem. I mean, Ham, sorry, not Shem. Capricorn is Shem. And he's pointing, he's calling attention to his father's nakedness. You see that? Mm. Because the, the, the forward leg of Aquarius could be interpreted as a, you know, portion of the male anatomy when naked and Capricorn is pointing right towards it. And that's why Ham, he's actually depicted with kind of a hand gesture that has to do with the horns of the goat. And he's pointing out the nakedness of his father. That's where this whole story comes from. And then who are the ones who carry a sheet between them and walk backwards to cover Aquarius? Where is that? Yeah. Where is it? I didn't put an arrow. It's Pisces. They're, the great well, square is, is the oh, sheep. Okay. Oh, right. Okay. A Pisces they walk there. backwards. They got to go backwards to, because Aquarius is pointing to the left. They've got to go from left to right to, to go cover Aquarius's nakedness. They're, they're carrying the sheet in between them. So it could play a vineyard. It could also play a sheet. It could also play a flayed horse, a backward flayed horse in the myths of Japan there's a backward flayed horse that Susanovo, or I'm not pronouncing it right because I don't. I've only seen it written down, so I mean, I can yeah. do my best. But <laughs> the, great, the great square is actually called the great square of Pegasus because right underneath the words actually is the outline of the horse. So he's been flayed. That's his skin that's been pulled off in the Kojiki story. So you see how these, these myths can play these roles or the, the constellations play these different roles in different myths. And actually... I live among a lot of vineyards here in central California. And you can see how the, uh, the branching fork of Pisces, I think that probably is, uh, you know, envisioned as a, a grape, you know, old grapevine uh, branching off there in the, in the story where Noah um, plants a vineyard. But look at the outline. Look at the outline of Aquarius and there's ham. I've actually reversed it, but this is from the 1360 Darmstadt uh, uh, painting. I've, I've reversed it and, and put it on top of Capricorn just to show how clearly his, his hand and arm signals make the outline of Capricorn. He's got the horns with one hand and he's got the little bobtail with his other hand. And in, in other paintings, you'll see they like make the, the legs and the head with the elbows of the arms. I don't show that in this presentation, but you can see it often in pictures of um, Doubting Thomas. Uh, he he uh, makes the same horns of the goat when he points towards the wound in the side uh, in the Doubting Thomas episode. So that's why Ham becomes the scapegoat. So I would argue that these stories are actually talking about, if they're talking about constellations then nobody's descended from this or that constellation it's metaphor and it's talking about spiritual things and it's actually talking about don't call attention to the the frailty of our bodies right 
if any of us drinks enough wine, we'll pass out just like Noah, right? We'll, 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 uh, so I'm good to go. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we're all, we're all subject to the frailties of the human body of, you know, if you poison us, we'll fall down. And if you drink enough wine, that's poison. You'll fall down. And the, the story is about not making fun of not, not, we all know that we're something more than just our body, right? When we get just treated as, you know, when we just get made fun of or ridiculed or put down because of our body, we're, we're, we like rebel against that. In fact, the watchers kind of show that in the movie. He's, he's showing, you know, we're dragged down in chains and encased in this mud. Um, we all rebel against that. And actually when we curse someone else or when we use swear words, they're usually body image, right? It's usually like shit or, you know, all the curse words you can think of have to do with basically just trying to reduce you to a body. And that's what Ham is doing in this episode, right? Ham is pointing, pointing out to his father, pointing to his father and saying, Hey, Shem and Japheth, come over here. Look, dad's just a pile of meat. You know, he's just, look at him. He's, he's drunk. Right. I guess my take is and they say no. <laughs> well, and they say we have to cover that up because we want to preserve the dignity that's inherent in everybody. So it's actually about not uh, reducing people to their external characteristics. And yet this story, historically, because it's been literalized and told it is about literal people. And, oh, you're descended from that one. And you're descend has basically... Uh, turned it totally on its head, right? It said, judge people by their ancestry or their physical characteristics. It's like the exact opposite. So that's, I think it's a really important, powerful, um, powerful illustration of the problems with taking it too literally. Is that um, what the tales and, are? I mean, you know, when, when the night sky was your main source of evening entertainment, we just, we have these stories built in and we, we tell them. Yeah, I think it's a really amazing system that uh, that has profound, it's got like profound lessons to teach us. I've got some more stuff to show you if you want. Just a few more, we can roll oh, into it. But I think this came from... That's fine. Yeah, we, we have yeah. to leave for our day jobs in got a, a, got a minute. Okay, so yeah. If you can, if you can blast through them, let's, let's do it. Yeah, well, let me just quickly, I'll, I will blast through them. So uh, let me go back to share screen. I won't spend much time at all on this part let me go here so um that's yeah, capricorn there's another story in the bible where we can see for sure that the vineyard is the great square it's called the story of balaam and his donkey it's usually called balaam and the ass uh, that's how it's in the king james version where he's beating the donkey because the donkey won't go forward because there's an angel in the path but balaam doesn't see the angel but there's actually a vineyard in that story. And so I've shown that Balaam is associated with Perseus, the constellation Perseus and the angel, and he's riding on the donkey. That's Taurus with the long horns instead of the long ears. But the angel is Andromeda in, in the path and the vineyard is the great square. So um, there's tons of, there's tons of evidence that Balaam is Perseus and the angel of Andromeda, but in the interest of time, We'll just blast forward, but that's additional evidence that the great square is the vineyard. 
in the Noah story as well. So I think our interpretations of the Noah story are, have some, uh, a lot of backing. This is from the uh, Norse myths. There's a, a great flood when Emir is slain by the, the three, the first of the Acer gods, Odin being one of them, but two strong Jotuns escape, uh, Jotun and his wife. And that Jotun's name is Ber Yelmir, and they float away on an ice flow. But um, this is from, this illustration is from this book that I had as a child, which I loved. And I'll just skip along with that, but uh, I'll, I'll just go through. We could show these parallels. This is from the younger Edda of Snorri, but it says, it's actually described as he floated away on a mill bench or a mortar, which a mortar is something, now it's something we launch uh, mortar rounds out of, but basically it's a, a mortar and pestle is what you grind up the grain in, which again, Ophiuchus plays that in many myths in Africa, in India, in the Norse myths around the world. So that's the arc again in this Norse myth. It's also in the Elder Edda or the Poetic Edda where he, uh, the same Ber Yelmir is laid in a cradle, or it's actually a, the word is a Luther, um, which means like a, a, a manger or a, a, a place that you put the flower, like a, a mill flower, like a mortar. So we have these figures around the world who get laid in a box or, and sent out into the water. Perseus actually does. His mother and he get put into a, a box by uh, his grandfather. Moses, of course, does, gets put in an ark of bulrushes and slimed with pitch and all those other things. In India, there's a figure named Karna who's put into an ark by his mother and put into a different river, the Yamuna River. In uh, other Mesopotamian, there's an ancient king named Sargon. He's put into, a, he says in his bio, this is actually his biography in cuneiform. He says, oh, I was put into the water by my mother, who was a priestess of Isis. And she, nobody could know that she was pregnant. So she put me in the water. In the uh, Beowulf, there's someone named Shield Shafing, who's also put into an ark as a baby. And then in Japan, I just had to race ahead to get to this. Oh, of course. You know who's put, put into the water? Something co. I got the co. Yes. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> Hiruko. There we go. That's actually, you see that, that little symbol on the left, isn't that an insect um, symbol? That's the insect symbol in Chinese, the insect, the insect radical. Sometimes it is, a, sometimes they just use it for the sound, so you can't always be sure. Yeah, it's the leech child. He, he was born with no bones, with no bones, so they called him the leech child, and they put him to sea, his parents put him to sea, and later he's also uh, given this name more commonly known by this name, but in the Kojiki is called Hiruko, the leech child, but he's cast into the water. That's the God of fishermen. Ah, beer. The God of fishermen. Nice beer. <laughs> <And> beer. Okay. <laughs> and beer. So there's another parallel to Noah. Yeah. So there's another parallel to Noah. I didn't even know that. There's another parallel to Noah. Oh, I didn't yes, even know that. So, yeah. So anyway, I, I'll just finish off with this. It's, a, it's all part of this big system. It's an ancient system. I don't think it's just telling stories, although certainly, you know, they were much closer to the stars back then because they could see them without light pollution. But the, uh, and I think this comes from some very ancient, sophisticated pre-Egypt civilization because it's already in the myths of Egypt. It's already about Babylonia. But this, in the Zodiac Wheel, just, 
I'll just quickly, this is the last thing I'm showing here. Um, the upper and the lower, they all have esoteric meaning, but we plunge down into the lower elements in this life. And that's the watery passage. That's the going through the watery passage. So in these ancient myths, going through the, the flood is actually what we're going through in this life. And that is actually how in the Mesopotamian myths, that's how Utpanapishtim is. He says at the end, the gods came to me after I went through the flood and said, now you're, you used to be a mortal man, but now you and your wife shall become like us gods because you went through the flood. We're going through the flood in this life. That's, that's what's going on. Uh, it's, you got to enjoy the flood. <laughs> well, yeah, it's a metaphor for what we're experiencing right, right now in this, in this life. We're in this body that's made of water, seven-eighths water. I mean, there's lots of esoteric, um, you know, Gnostic-type uh, parallels or, or lessons that are hidden in there. But you've got to understand them in this esoteric way. Not, it's not literal. Exactly. So I, rushed, I rushed that, but uh, no, no, hopefully sorry. that's coherent. Uh, the, the man called us in about 30 minutes earlier today. So. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> All right. We're the lady, I guess, in our case. But um, uh, obviously, that, that's sort of a primer for people. There, You have some pretty deep work to delve into, some books. Um, can you tell our listeners a bit about where they can uh, dive in deeper into these uh, floodwaters and, and some other myths as well, of course? Yeah, right on. The uh, website is called Star Myths of the World. So if you just look for, it's starmythworld.com is the URL. Um, and it's got sections with a blog, it's got videos, and it's got books that I've written. Um, I've made, you know, several dozen videos of varying degrees of quality. I'm still working on my filmmaking skills, you guys probably would say, oh my <laughs> goodness. But I'm trying to share this information and show and uh, and, and show it to people so and would you mind spelling your last name for a listener really quick because uh if you spell it wrong you get a very different result oh <laughs> uh, that's true you can just put in matheson and stars and find it but uh let me let me quickly uh i actually made a slide there it's matheson m-a-t-h-i-s-e-n uh if you just put m-a-t-h-i-s-e-n you can find it there's instagram and I do have a, there's, there's the spelling, a YouTube channel. So there we can, go. Okay. You can check and you that got it out. Thank you for, well. thanks. But, uh, no, thanks. That was quite a lesson. Um, definitely. Yeah. You're the smartest guy in this zoom room. I'll tell you that. <laughs> no, I wanted to hear more of your guys's witty banter and insightful <laughs> comments, but I, I'm, I monopolize the conversation with my presentation. No, no, no. Yeah. We, we hopefully wanted to get that out there. See it. I wanted to get the flood broken down a bit. So uh, that, that came through very nicely. So thank you for that. <laughs> yeah, the one thing which I wanted to bring up, but I didn't really, um, I'm big into paleontology. And when you read early paleontology papers, they all take the flood very literally. And when they're digging up dinosaurs and mammoths, say, oh, these are animals from before the flood. <laughs> Antediluvian, that's right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Very odd way of interpreting yeah. it. <laughs> well, it's, you know, I think there is a catastrophe in this story somewhere because it's like humanity has forgotten. Um, well, we, we you know, know that whole... we survived, you know, ice ages and all sorts, right? Yeah. But yeah. people, the people 10,000, 100,000 years ago, they didn't have the technology we have. They had our brains. 
So they were thinking these thoughts and writing these stories. Yeah. And maybe some of them got forgotten along the way, but somehow they got carried mouth to mouth and retold around the world. <laughs> it's just so interesting. Well, the, the interpretation so similar. It's suggesting, you know, people, I guess, would come out from a similar area with the same stories. So and uh, some, you know, spread out and multiply. No, go forth and multiply. Yes, the one. Thank you. That's, that's right. <laughs> that is, and that is a command given to Noah. But really, this shows that we're all connected. You know, we're all... We're all related. All our actual myths that have been used to divide us, actually, when you understand that they're all built on the same system, should unite us. And, uh, you know, that's what I think the, I think the myths are actually teaching positive and uplifting uh, messages that we still need today that have to do with all kinds of things that we're going through right now. Again, David, thanks for joining us. Yeah, today. I know you guys got to so, go. Yeah, in 20 minutes, we'll be uh, wiping tables and vacuuming floors. <laughs> right. Well, let's have a beer together someday. Uh, and right and we, can just, we can just riff about all kinds of things. I really yeah, enjoyed sure. it. So, um, Luke, how shall, people ex- how shall people exit the sanctuary today? Uh, well, they should all go forth themselves and safely multiply. There we go.